and welcome to the Antifada, where rest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are here with an excellent guest today. His name is Aaron Thorpe, a.k.a. Posadist Trap God on Twitter. Uh, former host of the Vanguard Army podcast and host of the soon-to-be-launched podcast, A Time of Monsters. What's up, Aaron? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm chilling. Uh, weather is nice today down here. It's not so hot. So, um, yeah, I'm just enjoying enjoying the ATL fall, you know, nice and cool. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you guys. That does sound nice. Um, I went to Atlanta, God, that was like a little over a year ago for the DSA convention. And I had... Well, I actually had a terrible time there, but it was not Atlanta's fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was the fault. I, I know a lot about that convention I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, it was definitely the fault of the DSA convention for being so yeah. terrible. But I did have a really, really good time the night of, well, actually the night of the Emerge church party was cool too. Uh, but the night of the Street Fight and Trillbillies show where I was a guest and I realized when we got there, it was right across the street from the Claremont Lounge. And then we went <laughs> yeah. there afterwards and had a really fun time. Do you know about that spot? Yeah, it's so funny you say that because um, one, I wanted to go to the convention so badly and more so just that uh, <laughs> oh, the Street Fight Radio Trillbillies thing. But I fucking like wage labor you know i had to fucking work and like wake up the next day early but um oh that was before yeah, covid abolished wage just, labor and people still had to work yeah yeah man it like my boss was like uh and he, he used to call me comrade and like he was like sort of like oh, a left no. yeah it, it was really bad dude but um he wouldn't let me go he was like nah like you you, you gotta work um but uh i haven't been to the claremont though actually man oh, it's so good Oh, yeah. you have to go. I'm so sad now. Like, I'm sad all over again about COVID because I just thought about how the Claremont Lounge isn't open. What What is, like, I know this, I'm from Atlanta, I should know, but, like, is it, like, a kind of risque sort of, like, like burlesque sort of, like, lounge kind of thing? Is that what it is? Yeah. Like, people call it a strip club. It's really not a strip club. It's a topless bar with a dance floor, all right? <laughs> and the strippers are all like shall we say unconventional beauties so you can see yeah. like a 60 year old woman with giant tits like crush a beer can with her boobs or whatever oh, hell yeah. and there's also like a really lit dance floor on the weekends where the dj is like a 75 year old black man in a cool hat playing <laughs> awesome disco jams and you can smoke inside nice nice <laughs> i gotta i gotta it makes me sad too because with covid now like I don't know when that shit's going to be open again, but yeah, I got to check it out when all this shit is uh, over, hopefully. We have to cure COVID. We need a vaccine <laughs> so that we can keep on giving money to the lovely ladies at the Claremont Lounge. And exactly. We, can keep we have on to support local it. economies, right? Oh my God. I'm like sad all over again. Fuck. Well, someday, someday COVID will be over. It's like, um, what is it that the Jewish people say next year in Jerusalem? Yeah. It's like we say that after every podcast, you know, Something when like COVID's over. So, Inshallah. Inshallah, exactly. So I thought, I guess I usually introduce a guest and how we know them. Um, and we really know Aaron just from Twitter. He's a um, prolific poster. He's a prolific sure. poster. I like his takes. They really. Uh, I first came across Aaron when I was searching the word Posadas because that those searches also searched the names of the people posting. You came up like, you know, 15, 20 times a day. So you're very familiar with this content. Yeah, I think I might have muted you for a time when I was running that marketing <laughs> campaign. 
man. But you were unmuted I'll be, I'll be afterwards. You know, I got I got the name and learned about Posadism from um, your episode, Andy, I think, with uh, Pod Damarco with Jake Flores when you mm. talked about it. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I was like, I was at work washing dishes and listening to that episode. And like, usually I half-ass kind of listen to pods, but I was like, this is fucking insane. Like, they fucking believe in UFOs and nuclear warfare and telepathic dolphins. This is fucking tight. <laughs> um, and like the whole accelerationism thing. So yeah, I, I credit like y'all to to the the uh the handle that i have right now to be honest with you oh nice well <laughs> yeah. who knew who knew we yeah. were so we were so intimately interlinked and now yeah, yeah. and now we can podcast together now Hell we can yeah. share everything yeah. it's a beautiful thing from reply guy to prolific uh podcaster <laughs> hopefully right. the american dream inshallah <laughs> the but american are, dream are you actually gonna do a posadas trap project though like music <laughs> Oh, music? No, the the I don't know if I could talk about this on the pod, but the trap is a uh, it's not just the name, but um, you know, like yeah, I'll I'll, I'll put it that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> there is a secret project. Out. Yeah, that's that's a secret ongoing project. Yeah. I see. I oh, see. Stay tuned, everybody. So, speaking of facadism, I want to get y'all's take on this, but mostly Aaron's. Hmm. Things are fucked. Why haven't the space comrades come down? And helped us out yet. Like, what more could they possibly be waiting for? Well, there's, like, a few different theories. Uh, like, there's a, I mean, mainly there's the Fermi paradox, right? This idea mm. of if there are so many star systems out there, billions of stars, right? And, um, you know, why aren't we seeing, like, you know, signs of intelligent life? Like, if, if you know, uh, habitable planets orbit, like, these huge star systems, right? Or are within these huge star systems. And, uh I guess it's either because there's a couple of reasons. One, maybe they're just too far away. I mean, we're talking billions of light years. Uh, by the time that they would reach us or we would, you know, develop the technology to reach them, like they would already be dead or we'd be dead. Um, they could also just be kind of chilling and mm. like watching us, like some Star Trek, like kind of prime directive type shit. You know what I mean? That's like, what not I would do. To... I'd be sitting back and just watching. Yeah, I mean, why would you want to interfere? It's like kind of looking in like a Petri dish, you know? You're just like, I wonder how this is going to go. Or, like, maybe we're just, like, really fucking alone. <laughs> that could yeah. be bad, too, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, but if I do believe that if aliens exist, like, they're totally, like, comrades. I mean, it just, I mean, they could either be, like, war, like warfaring species or they could have either just, like, said, hey, like, we're totally peaceful, um, which would, you know, give evidence to their long-lasted existence if we can travel between stars right they would have kind of had to have a post-scarcity society so i don't know man maybe, maybe they're just like kind of like looking at us and saying they're not ready yet that, that's what i like maybe uh 2020 isn't bad enough and they'll be coming in 2021 maybe <laughs> yeah. it's darkest right before the dawn maybe yeah. maybe we'll be ready next year yeah, and hopefully they won't fucking like want to destroy us because Joe Biden is president or some shit. You know what I mean? Honestly, at this point, well, that'd be fine too. Yeah, I'd be cool with that. I'm, I'm ready for it, dude. Like, there was the meme, like, you know, Xi Jinping, like, you know, like fucking liberate us. But now I'm just like, yeah, dude, just I'm, I'm ready for some Independence Day type scenario. Like, just fucking get it over with. We right? went from uh, from save us, President Xi, to uh, bomb us, uh, space comrades, basically. <laughs> Hell yeah. You can't have capitalism if everyone's dead. We, we won't have communism either, but at least we won't have capitalism anymore. So, I, I mean, we'll just go back to some primitive anarcho like type society, you know what I mean? And just, you know, start all over again. 500 <laughs> right. years of primitive surgery. Let's go. Yeah. Primitive <laughs> communism, baby. We're so, going preemie. Uh, 
Um, before we get into too many topics, I would like to know a little bit about your media project because some people are cowards and don't listen to all the way to the end of the episode. So what mm-hmm. is your new podcast all about and what are you trying to do with it? Um, yeah, so it's called The Time of Monsters and it is just a sort of chronicling of our uh, societal decay and descent into barbarism and the radical left, uh, left struggle against it. So I'm going to be doing uh, interviews with uh, journalists, activists, um, content creators, just pretty much like a who's who of like left media or left Twitter. Uh, I interviewed Glenn Greenwald and spoke to him about the Assange case, Snowden and his work in Brazil. And I spoke to Matt Chrisman about the Civil War. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of take a historical materialist sort of analysis. So uh, it is like history based. Right. It provides context for leftists to understand, like, why we are where we are now. And, uh, you know, it won't always be so depressing and heavy. I'm uh, trying to get on Ben Mora uh, bitch updates on Twitter. Uh, He's pretty funny. So I think that episode will be a little bit more more amusing. But, um, yeah, man, it's just me just kind of talking to people about, like, what they do and what they what they think, uh, you know, is kind of going on right now. Very cool. Um, and I will say, if you are going to talk to Glenn Greenwald, those are the things you should talk to him about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's That episode is recorded and finished, and it sounds amazing. I do not hate the sound of my voice. I do not sound stupid. And um, Glenn was really nice, by the way. I know he's a controversial figure on the left, but he was really nice to me. So I'm, I'm excited. It's going to launch in uh, early October. I'm going to drop five episodes uh, the first week of October with all the interviews that I have. And after that, once a week, and I'll have a Patreon with weekly news updates. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. Hell yeah. So speaking of uh, the fall of humanity uh, <laughs> and our ongoing fucking hell world that we all live in, um, <laughs> we, lost, we lost a comrade this week. We are, I'm, I'm, of course, talking <laughs> about a revolutionary... Girl boss, the Rosa yeah. Luxemburg of our time. Feminist hero. Yes. Uh, notorious RBG. Yeah. Rest in peace, yes. Right. So, <laughs> Rest in power, I say. Yeah. <laughs> Rest in, no, I won't say that. You know, it's too <laughs> serious. <laughs> smart um, move, man. Smart move. So, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to do. We have blown past our goal of 1917, at least in terms of patrons. We're still working on that goal for the world in general. Um, but we are, as we speak, uh, stuffing all of our specially designed postcards from Radix Media into envelopes, um, signing them and putting some stickers in there for you. So if we owe you one um, from this little round of uh, rewards, thank yous, bonuses for our patrons, you should be getting it very fucking soon. Um, also, a few people, honestly, not that many, but a few people have asked me about uh, the t-shirt situation. And the answer is, um, big old, I don't know. But um, if you want a t-shirt, you can email mindset at gmail.com, subject line, shirt, shall we say, and tell us that you want one and what size you want. We have some still from the last round, um, but then we will uh, we'll let you know how to how to have them, <laughs> right? And we'll 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 probably almost definitely be able to sell you a shirt and send it to you in the mail, so you can um, show your love of communist podcasts to everyone who sees you walking down the street. 
We got yeah. a bunch of libs promising to burn it all down. I wish they probably <laughs> mean vote for Joe Biden. Like, what's what's going on with that? You think the libs are going to be uh, burning shit down over this if uh, they get the new uh, fucking reactionary on there? No, no, fuck no, man. And, like, the, you know, the thing is, like, I, I lost a lot of, um like, I didn't lose a lot, but I've been losing followers and stuff because I, I just, like have been kind of going on a tear, like just shit posting about her. And I think what people don't understand is like, um, you know, democratic socialists, which are not talking shit about DSA or uh, Dem Sox or anything like that. But I mean, they're social Democrats, right? They're left liberals. And they think that the left's, uh, the left should try and capture the court and pack it. But really historically socialists have always tried to restrain the power of the court because it is inherently an anti-democratic institution. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe if like Collins or, uh, Lindsey Graham, who are kind of at risk of losing their seats, maybe if it depends on how they vote, depends on what, what McConnell decides to do. But, um, I, it really is, I think the, the goal of the left to sort of, yeah, restrain the power of the court as much as possible. And nobody should be mourning for a racist eugenicist who, you know, just in an institution that often sides with capital, it's just... Like libs have been like, I saw on MSNBC on Chris Hayes, this one uh, lib pundit was drinking a glass of wine. I saw that, you know, yeah. Oh my heavens. Glass. Yeah. yeah, like these people are committing seppuku, you know what I mean? Like they're, <laughs> like, fucking, they're losing their minds and I am enjoying it. And um, I mean, it does have real material consequences, but at the end of the day, I don't I don't know if that's a long-term project that the left should concern itself with, with um you know, the Supreme Court is just inherently anti-democratic. So, yeah. yeah. They're like, if we lose another justice, um, minorities and women might start being oppressed and we can't have that. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, welcome to the fucking club, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just been going on for a long ass time. So, uh, yeah, rest in, rest in, rest in peace. Uh, well, to for, RBG. for all her flaws, I think she did represent like sort of the pinnacle of liberal progressivism of a certain era. And that's why yeah. people respect her is because she was something uh, she, she was like a uh, important figure um, yeah. for, in a time. But that time was about 50 years ago <laughs> or, you know, several decades ago, at least. And she only served to kind of protect the gains of that time. And it's a huge problem that we haven't made more gains and that our only hope of defending those previous gains is to keep a person alive indefinitely. You know, people yeah. should be really mourning the fact that that era of progress ended and that there hasn't been any institutional replacement. Exactly. I think people should mourn too, just like sort of FDR's vision of the court, right? Like if anything, right? If you're from the left and, you know, and that that idea of packing the court came at a time where, you know, labor was strong in this country. Um, and the court was a bit more activist um, and not like reactionary activists, I guess. Um, so, you know, definitely there are rulings that she's had, especially with, you know, the Affordable Care Act and things that she's done that I, I, I can appreciate. But I think the idea that every couple of years now um, people are going to be fretting over the fate of the democracy and civil liberties and civil rights in this country because like one of these old nine decrepit fucks might die is just really insane, right? It's like really chaotic and uh, volatile. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, obviously I believe in as a communist abolish the Supreme Court, but it's, I don't, I don't know, that's not feasible right now, right? So I guess like, you know, just kind of take the wins where we can and hope that um, 
I don't even know what to hope for, right? Like, I mean, Biden, if he wins, it's not going to... It's not going to stack the court with like you know left libs, right? Um, I think one one thing that we were talking about. Before, he said he said he wouldn't pack the court, right? Like he said that very explicitly. Yeah, I, I think he did. Yeah. One yeah. thing we were talking about before the show, and this is an interesting question: is how do people like us, how do commies, anarchists, people who are anti-capitalist, anti-democrat, get involved in these struggles around the Supreme Court? So it's kind of weird to be like, would would we personally go out and involve ourselves in like big protests and riots in order to keep the Republicans from like putting somebody else on? Yeah, I don't lot, know. A lot it's, of leftists did get involved in the Kavanaugh protests. It was sort of a lib leftist confluence of things. Wasn't that more feminist though than than just the Supreme Court itself because he was a rapist? Like kind of a, a, yeah. a kind of like feminists can be leftists too. No, no, I know, yeah. I know <laughs> what I'm saying. Be. That if if like for example, if Trump wants to put up, I forget her name, but like a strict Catholic woman who presumably hasn't like sexually assaulted anybody when she was a teenager, would the left have? Would the left be that involved if it wasn't like a Me Too type situation? You but know, those what I mean? protests I I'm think sure. started because uh, because of Roe versus Wade and Kavanaugh okay. is being like a, a lifelong activist to overturn it. I could be wrong mm-hmm. about that, but I I think it, Carrie Severino is the is the woman everyone's afraid is from Judicial Crisis Network. People are afraid is going to be appointed, and I think there would be that kind of protesting as well. I just don't think it'll be effective if the Republicans want to put her through; they'll do it. And there's no kind of protesting that's going to stop that besides, yeah. you exactly. know, a, uh, let's say extreme protesting. So, well, exactly. Like, that's, yeah, that's that's the thing, right? It's like, how do how do you protest the Supreme, Supreme Court nominee? Like, what 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 material, like, you know, I guess, what, what sort of, how can we balance or, like, you know, weigh on those levers of power to, like, you know, convince these people to not nominate this person. I, I mean, it's going to happen anyway, right? Like, I don't yeah. I don't mean to sound nihilistic, but it's just like, I don't see what the left can really do um, uh, w- w- besides, like, an actual, like, president that's sort of willing, like, maybe somebody like Bernie, I don't know. I don't know. Somebody who would either be willing to pack the court to restrain his power. I, I don't see wh- where it, we have any leverage it, there. It seems like to me the, the difficulty with the leverage thing, and I think you guys are right, is that if you have, like, a, a local matter like, say, a picket line, you can actually do something direct and material on the ground in order to support mm-hmm. people. By the time you get all the way up to the Supreme Court, you're passing through the Senate, <laughs> through 100 senators, and you're trying yeah. to affect something all the way in D.C. that happens, like, you know, on this big, big rarefied stage. So it's really hard to imagine how, except for, like, blocking the Supreme Court, which I'm not activi- uh, I'm not calling for, uh, you mm-hmm. could really, like, make it hurt and, like, make the politicians do what you want. I just don't see it. Mm. Yeah. So you yeah. asked a question that has no answer. Of course it did. We're doing a dialogue here. This is so it's dialectical. It's dialectical. Yeah, it's dialectical. I feel like the left could have some way of interfacing with this, I think. I'm not, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot myself, and I realize I stepped on your question at the beginning, and I'm mm-hmm. sorry but sometimes I get stepped on too, so it's fine. Um, step back. <laughs> step up, step back. <laughs> step up, step back. Right, uh, yeah. But like, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's maybe a way, like on the one hand, 
we want to show like the organized left is not that many people yet and most people don't like us yet or like don't even know we exist i wouldn't like us if i was we're me. enemies uh, of the state jamie actually <laughs> we're enemies of the state well, that is fu- that's good like we want yeah. the state to not like us but like most of the people they were gonna need to get on our side say they don't really like us yet um and that includes like I guess that includes all like the liberals and the pussy hat ladies and the people who like have this like kernel of human empathy that's causing them to be liberals in the first place. I guess like the good ones, you know, the ones yeah. who are Sam liberals because liberals. they, you know, <laughs> yeah, they like care about people and the world and people's rights and their own rights. And they're like, this is how we, you know, protect our rights. Um, Mm. If we're just like, well, fuck all this. It doesn't matter unless it's the revolution. They're going to think we're assholes and they're not going to listen to anything else we say. So, I mean, my goal and, you know, we can talk about the historical problems with popular fronts and what happens to the communists and anarchists in them when shit really gets popping. But you end up on the bottom of a canal. Um, Oh, dear. At least, like, you know, in this moment, my hope is we can participate in these fights alongside of the libs, like we saw with um, the airport protests, right? right? Or like we even BLM, right? Even the the BLM protests, you did have like a lot of like, you know, white liberals who were like showing the fuck up and, you know. Absolutely. But I don't think it wasn't like spearheaded by them, though. And I think this is like a really a really libby lib kind of issue my hope is that um you know we're participating alongside of them in good faith just like we participated in the bernie thing right mm-hmm. and because we want it to work like we don't want shit to get worse for people unless you're just a total accelerationist which i think is dumb um, yeah which i am not by the way i am not, no, I don't think not. Any of us like are. we want these things to work but we know that they probably will fail and then when they do fail and our rights are not protected by any of these institutions, these people are going to be looking for answers. And then we're going to be there to provide the answers. So that is the value that I see in participating yeah. in stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to be hyperbole or anything like that or try to pick like a historical example and drop it into like modern context. But like, you know, we're, we, will, we will be playing the role of the Bolsheviks, right? Like when the material... <laughs> are ripe. I mean, hopefully, like if we're organized enough, right? Um, when the material conditions are ripe, you know, people are in class consciousness is elevated to such a level where it's a fever pitch and the contradictions have revealed themselves and this whole entire thing is untenable. Um, people are going to be looking for answers. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping we can uh, get our shit together uh, before then so that uh, people can can sort of like not look to us. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to like uh, I don't think that I'm going to be leading a revolution, but definitely people are going to be looking for answers. And I, I do think that whatever happens with the Supreme Court thing, the left should try whatever constitutes the U.S. left, like should try to figure out a way to get involved in it. Because like, Jamie, it is important, Jamie, you know, it does have material consequences for, you know, millions of like working class people and people of color. So um, I, I'm not that nihilistic. It's just like, you know, again, like shit, man, how do you fucking do it? You know? Yeah. Yeah, like, and and at the same time, like, I've heard arguments from people saying, well, you're going to legitimize the 
courts if you do this and act like it matters and the court is already uh, legitimized like what the fuck the court has a lot of power yeah i don't think (laughs) that's in any danger that's like like when uh people on on twitter or in the media are like they they can't platform Donald Trump when he says these things. He's the president like, of the United States. Like, motherfucker, he already has a platform. He's the president of the fucking the, United States. The biggest States. platform in world history. He's just standing on it every <laughs> yeah. day. The question of legitimacy isn't whether they have power. Obviously, they have power. The question is, do people broadly view their power as legitimate? Like, liberals tended to think that the court was legitimate, that it did provide this kind of balance and this check to the, mm-hmm. the rest of the government. Uh, and I don't... Th- there fewer and fewer people believe anything like that. You know, you have to be kind of really a liberal ideologue to still have any faith in the court system now. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, I think that's a positive thing. I, th- I think yeah. people need to be disillusioned to the courts, to the judicial system in general, the carceral system in general, that that is not justice, that justice doesn't come from that, that if we want justice, we have to get rid of it. That's what, yeah. that's what I think delegitimization means. Well, I mean, also, too, I'm kind of looking it up now, and this is um, not so recent. This is from 2018. There was something on Twitter that was more recent. But, like, most, like, more than half of Americans can't even name the nine justices, right? Right. I couldn't fucking do it. I'm going to be honest here. I fucking can't do it. Like, you give me, like, maybe five minutes, you know? Um, I can't fucking do it. And I think that, like, that even in itself, sort of, like, Andy, what you're saying, like, that legitimacy of the court, I think... Um, as people see these kind of back and forth between, you know, Democrats and Republican presidencies and who's appointed, that hopefully, especially younger generations, kind of going to look at the court and be like, this is fucking bullshit. Like, this- these, the, like this country shouldn't be like, you know, dictated. And, you know, the law of the land shouldn't be dictated by like nine old fucking people who like, you know what I mean, just like surf life and where material conditions change so much where, you know, within 10 years, you know what I mean, like um, an issue can arise and change where it's maybe we, maybe we shouldn't have lifetime appointments. Maybe that's the first step. Right. Um, so I don't know, like, but, but hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll uh, figure this shit out. But in, in a longer historical view though. And I like to do that on this mm-hmm. podcast and elsewhere, we have to look at it and realize how antiquated the American constitution is. And this yeah. idea that the executive sits there as this sort of dispassionate long, I'm sorry, the judicial sits as this dispassionate sort of long-term uh, stabilizing effect on like the, uh, I don't know, the, the patterns of governance and blah, blah, blah. That seems so absurd when you saw what happened. Anybody who paid attention to the district courts uh, under Obama. Anybody saw that they saw what they did with uh, Merrick Garland when they they wouldn't let mm. Obama put him through. And now what Trump has done with the courts, it's impossible to see the courts, the the judicial system, as a non political, you know, actor. Which I think exactly. is the first part of understanding that it's it's delegitimized. Yeah, even even my mom, like I'll, I'll say this, and you know, I guess we can move on or whatever or not. But like my mom, she said something interesting yesterday. She's like a left lip, you know, um, older Jamaican woman, and she said, "Yeah, I don't think that uh, the Supreme Court justices should be political." And um, I was like, "Ah, like you're you're sort of like seeing the contradictions reveal themselves, like you're understanding them, right?" Yeah. Um, and I mean, I was before I dropped out of uh, college, I was taking a poli sci course. I was a poli sci major, and my mentor. Um, and professor in poli sci 101, one of the first things he said to us was like, yeah, this is an inherently anti-democratic institution. Right. I mean, I think for the first time, like a lot of younger people in that class, like had to really think about it. And further, what you're saying, Sean, just the 
American system and how antiquated it is and how slow it is to actually change anything. Like this American system is really designed to like, you know, nothing where nothing bad happens, but nothing good happens either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just it's 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 moderation, which will always tend to reactionary uh, sort of fascistic tendencies yeah. and so-called representative democracy. Right? Like at best, they protect the shit that we already have. Like that's exactly. what the liberal justices do. And the reactionary justices, they're reactionaries, so they try to roll it back. Well, there's, yeah. I know we're trying to get off of this, but there was a brief period of like 40, 50 years of judicial activism in the 20th century when the court, the Supreme Court, you know. Like the Warren Court? The, the Warren Court, which interpreted yeah, things yeah. in a progressive direction. And liberals can't seem to get it out of their heads that that was an aberration. Or they can't understand that that was an aberration and that historically, except for that period. And then, like Jamie said, for the last like 40 years or so, it's been, if anything, reactionary. It's simply been trying to hold on. The liberals have been trying to hold on to the gains that were won in that past era. But you can't you can never rely on the courts. Never. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. And I think back to our point about legitimacy, the legitimacy is going away no matter what any of us say or do. So I'm not that concerned about legitimizing or delegitimizing the courts with whatever the left does in our extremely limited power, because that is happening regardless. I think we should de-platform the Supreme Supreme Court. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like, Jamie, like, I guess history, I don't mean to have make this sound like a hands off approach. Right. But um History is happening. It's going to happen. Um, I think that it's happening so much. Yeah, it's like we 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 almost don't even have to do anything, right? With regards to like this whole Ginsburg thing, and you know, people sort of understanding that like McConnell and Trump are going to do every parliamentary trick that they can do to like shuttle somebody through before the election. And um, yeah, like I guess that's the good thing about the American system and capitalism in itself is that it just kind of eats itself, right? Um, and yeah, they're, they're kind of like, you know, selling us the, the noose, which, you know, we'll use to hang them. Right. Mm. Like to put it that way. Uh, Satirically and in a parody. Oh, (laughs) this is, this is my argument why I'm not threatened by like social democratic reformers like Bernie Sanders. Right. Like if I believed that capitalism could be fixed, then maybe I would be. But I don't believe that it can't. So, like, if people can fucking try to fix it, that's fine. And then when it fails, um, we have all the more heft in our arguments for our side, you know? And it'll fail even harder, (laughs) right? It'll fail even harder, right? So, yeah. I'm a a pessimistic optimist. I I always put it that way. Optimism of the intellect, pessimism of the will. Wait, did I get that backwards? God damn it. (laughs) Did she? I think she's great. Uh, yeah, I don't even fucking know. But yeah, yeah. Pessimism yeah. Um, of the intellect, optimism of optimism, the will. There we go. Nailed it. We're doing theory on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Atlanta because I know we touched on it before, but it is an interesting place and topic. And I think a Sean, lot of people live there too. A lot of lot of people live there. It's uh, it's great. It's a great city. I've been there a few times, but um. There's, it's, it's not immune from the same issues that other cities have. Um, I think Sean had a little 
little question. Is it a question? Is yeah, it a comment? A no, it's topic more of a question. I'm he wanted not, to get to related to Atlanta. I'm not going to get on my soapbox the for this. The lost city of Atlanta. I was <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> I was figuring while we have Aaron from Atlanta on the show, if maybe he could answer a question for me that I've had for a long time, because I've known people in New York City. Uh, black people that I've known through the years who have left New York, which they thought was total shit for probably good reasons, and gone down to this mecca of Atlanta. And I know there's a black lot... Mecca. Black mecca, yeah. There's, I know there's a lot of discourse in the media and just in the culture in general about what Atlanta represents, which, you know, as far as I've heard it or, or the way it's portrayed, is as this black mecca that's like the one place in this country where African-Americans can go and there's a black uh, political leadership, there's a large black middle class, there's a large black bourgeoisie, and a place that's sort of like a home, let's say, for like black Americans, unlike maybe any other city is in the country, except maybe New Orleans, but even more so maybe than New Orleans. So unpack that a little bit, Aaron. How much of that is true? And even if it is true, how much of that uh, papers over some contradictions that may exist in Atlanta? Uh, so Atlanta, actually, uh, I know this is going to sound like wild to y'all, but um, I'm just looking it up now, as you were saying. In Atlanta, uh, since 2019, only 34% of the population is actually black. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And this is just in Atlanta, right? Um, and That doesn't uh, sound like Wakanda at all. No, no. Someone did a speech not, where they right? said it was Wakanda, and I believed them because I listened to Black Voices. Uh, it's not well, even right. Ruth Conda. You see us, you hear us, Jamie, and I appreciate you for that. <laughs> no, that seriously though, like since uh, the '80s, uh, Atlanta has this reputation of being the Black Mecca um, because it, I guess it's had like the highest proportion of um, uh, middle income, you know, uh, Black people, but. What you see is that with increasing gentrification and the prioritization of real estate, um, I was telling you guys earlier before the show, there's this uh, there's this thing called the Beltline, which circles the city of Atlanta, and it was uh, developed by this guy named um, I think his name is Ryan I forget Ryan Gravel or something like that, but he was a student at Georgia Tech and he had this idea for this ring around the city that would include, um, you know, public transportation, uh, green space, um, some level of affordable housing. I've actually worked with um, a guest that you guys had on, um, my comrade Dick, um, Ah, with, yeah, with Housing Justice League in Atlanta. We worked on a little project called the Beltline for All, where we would talk to, um, you know, black homeowners and renters about the uh, deleterious effects of the Beltline. And what you see is, this black misleadership class, uh, you know, Kasim Reed, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, um, you know, other folks before that who, you know, give deference to capital and real estate. And you're actually seeing black folks leaving um, Atlanta because they just can't afford to live here. Wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. They just can't afford to live here. And uh, I guess Atlanta kind of occupies this weird space where, yeah, it, it's been called a sit- the city that's too busy to hate. I think New York. I mean, if we want to draw a parallel, I guess people think of New York as a liberal state, um, but really you have like outside of New York City, um, you have a little bit more, you know, uh, red districts or conservative well, it, sort of it, ideology. It gets yeah. pretty conservative pretty quick when you get farther exactly, out exactly. of Long Island or farther upstate. Yeah, you're right. Oh, oh bro. Like, yeah, I drive out. I live in what's called Lithonia. That's like um, 
that's the very end of what's considered the Atlanta metropolitan area. And he got 30 minutes and I'm seeing Confederate flags flying. Oh, sure, like yeah. that, right. So yeah, dude, it's, it's, but yeah, that, that's a myth, man. Like Atlanta is not a black Mecca at all. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, I think this was about two years ago, Atlanta was rated as the uh, city with the highest level of wealth and income inequality. You know, um, Atlanta is a city in which all the public housing since, uh, I believe, 1996, the Olympics was torn down, um, where, you know, homeless people were pretty much all homeless shelters as well were closed down. So homeless folk, um, unhoused folk were pretty much left to die. Um, I believe that this was actually under God. What's the name of uh, the name of the mayor? The guy who made the quote that uh, he said something like, um, uh, polit- "Like local politics," or I forget. I forget what his name is. Jesus, I'm gonna have to look this up. But like all of this, pretty much has been stewarded by like you know the black misleadership class, mm. right? Uh, especially with the Hollywood industry coming in, you know, mm, film industry yeah, yeah. coming in as well um i mean they're just like these people just don't give a fuck about like the folks that live here so i enjoy it i enjoy the culture but as like a communist and as a historical materialist like i'm under no illusions that um yeah this is this is not not really a good place for black folk at this time right unless you have the capital right unless you're a uh, killer mike right yeah. i mean maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about that i've oh, met man. him before too. i'm very disappointed uh we'll talk um, about killer mike yeah, yeah yeah but um but, yeah i guess to answer your question yeah it's 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 not it's not good here for so, black so folk, so really what what we're talking about is the age-old thing of boosterism you've got local yeah. black leaders in atlanta who are putting this myth out there in order to get people to move get companies to move if i recall correctly from i think it might have been a kevin cruz book i read years back oh um, god i have yeah uh white flight i love that book. yeah, yeah. the wasn't there something yeah. where coca-cola was lured down there and a, and a bunch of oh, capital yeah. was moved down on the post-war era yeah, so like a little bit of historical context, and again, like I'm kind of going off of memory because I read that book a couple of years ago. I should probably read it. Before it's a great interview. book. Yeah. I might, I might. It is an amazing it. book. Uh, White Fly by Kevin Cruz, and follow him on Twitter too. Um, he has great tweets. But pretty much, there was this partnership between um, the black leadership, political leadership, um, white capital, and white liberals um, that uh, made Atlanta a hub for an economic hub, right? And um, that's why it got the you know title of the city too busy to hate because the busyness implies like um, um, economic business right? right and it had to be this way because I mean at that time like the rest of the South was rightfully so seen as um, you know um, pro uh, pro segregation um, pro Jim Crow and Atlanta was the one place and Coca Cola you know especially. Um, was the one place and a lot of other business leaders um, where there was this very tenuous relationship between um, black and white in this city, but purely for economic reasons, mm. right? Um, to make Atlanta a city that was welcoming to to business, right? To capital. Um, there was obviously but, a um, an anti-union state still too. Yes, yes, that too as well, right? And I mean, this is just, uh, I spoke to Matt Christman about this too when I did the episode on the Civil War for my upcoming pod, but I think people just got to understand that the South, I've lived in the North my whole entire life. I've moved down here for like the last like five years. And um, the South is, uh, the the racism in the South is sort of covered up by this uh, need to work together, right? Mm -hmm. Where black, poor blacks and poor whites 
live in such close proximity to one another um, that, I mean, as just a function of like culture and a function of just like, um, you know, succeeding like as a city, right? A lot of these things are covered up, but it, it also is to the detriment of, again, like poor whites and poor blacks, right? So this is all just like a veneer, you know what I mean? Like we have anti-unionism. We also have like, you know, uh, uh, you know, white mayors previously before like this proliferation of black mayors that have completely kind of sided, you know, with with the the more racist side of the South, right? Sure. Because it was more advantageous to do it uh, for votes, but it was also very. I guess how can I put it? it? It was, um, I mean, it's the South, right? Like, I don't need you to like, in the South, like New York is, is I would, it was the first time I've ever been called like the N word in Long Island. Right. Mm. But when I moved down here, it's sort of like that Southern hospitality thing is real. You know what I mean? Um, it doesn't mean that the racism doesn't exist, but it's just like kind of coded, right? right? right. It's coded because it's just economically, I think as a materialist, it's just kind of economically advantageous for that to happen. So yeah. So, so this idea of class harmony, this idea of civic boosterism, this idea of bringing as much capital, as much business as possible, is used to try to paper over not just the, uh, the, the class distinctions that exist, but also to kind of create a false harmony between white and black. Because everyone's exactly. just trying to get, you know, get through the day, everyone's trying to make money, blah, blah, blah. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like, um, honestly, you know, a lot of like transplants, like white folk that come down here, um, they come here because they believe that they want to be in a city that's more diverse. Um, but then these are the same motherfuckers who, you know, have gentrified a whole ass neighborhood and have Black Lives Matter signs in their yards, right? I right. guess it's just that same ethos and the contradiction of the city too busy to hate with this, uh, you know, race and class, this sort of dialectical relationship between the two that has just, you know, been to the detriment of like, you know, not just poor black folk, but poor white folk down here as well, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's um, that was the sense that I got, and you were obviously you have the experience down there, and you basically uh, confirmed everything I might have thought about that mythos about <laughs> yeah. that uh, black mecca mythos. <laughs> so thank I'm you. not gonna lie though. I'm not gonna lie though. Like I would, uh, I like it a lot more down here than I did in New York, and I grew up in New York, um, just because like the space, you know. Um, but I mean, people moving down here probably, or even I should say, leftists or activists or anyone who has the opportunity to move down here and um, they think that this city's like, you know, this, this hub of diversity where uh, especially maybe for liberals who uh, are suffering from acute white guilt. Yeah, um, yeah man, it, it's not, it's not, it's not what you think it is, but it's still, a, it's still a beautiful city, man, the history. And I love it. So, yeah, I'll never talk shit about the South. That's what I always, that's, that's what I maintain. I will never talk shit about the South, but it's just, it is what it is. You know, some of our best listeners are from down South. It's yeah, true. Yeah. And, you know, we love we love all of you. Equally. Yeah, yeah, if you're listening yeah. to this, we love you as much as we yeah. love anybody else listening to this. Unless you're like a Nazi listening to it to try to like. That's the second show in a row us. you said are Nazis <laughs> listening. Are you starting to get paranoid? I, I mean, maybe. Yeah. I don't think they. <laughs> These are know. strange times we're living in. You yeah, never know. Or maybe we'll yeah. win them over and then they'll become uh, communists. I don't know. They might be hate listening and now they're kind of like, okay, like that, that's real. That's you know? how you get them. I mean, that's not the only way you get them, but that's one way you get people. <laughs> Well, well, to be nice. honest, like Trillbillies, Trillbillies, they're, I think they're great for this, man. Uh, yeah. Shout out to them. That was the first pod I ever went on. They gave me, like, an amazing opportunity. And, uh, yeah, they're in this weird, like, kind of confluence between, like, like when I told my sister I was going on this 
show with like Kentucky communists. She was like, what? <laughs> like, like, what? And I was like, yeah, dude, like they're actually like comrades, you know? So uh, shout out to them for like kind of uh, making the South rise again, but in a good oh, way. Yeah. Though, Hell yeah. Well, yeah. Did we want to talk about Killer Mike, or should we just be sad about that let's, on our own let's, time? You know, no, let's no, do let's, it. Let's, let's dish, about let's shit, dish on Killer Fuck Mike. That, dude, let's yo. talk about the misleadership class. Just, just for yeah, a yeah. minute. Just for a minute. Because yeah. I I don't know. I was a little disappointed in Killer Mike uh, myself, because I really I liked him as a surrogate for Bernie. I thought he was really great. He was delivered fiery speeches about, you know, the shit that we need to get more equality in this country, yada, yada. And then um, I think after the Bernie campaign ended and then we saw this historic uprising is where we really started to see, um, I'll say the limitations of the Bernie thing in general, of which Killer Mike is just one representative. Although I do think there are like a lot of disparate elements that came together in the Bernie campaign from like, fucking communists who decided to support it to like left liberals who were just like this is the best left left liberal running in the race and i think it turned out killer mike was the latter although he has written some very subversive lyrics um he seems like pretty committed to the system he made that speech about how you know some people in his family are cops and you don't want to burn down Atlanta because that's your home but like if you don't own your if you don't own anything like are you burning down your own home really or is it you know, you know the shit. home of the people oppressing you yeah I think I think the killer Mike thing just shows like the kind of limitations to um the sort of left liberal appeal of Bernie that once class interests or once your material interests are under threat um, you will quickly, as Killer Mike did, turn to telling people not to burn shit down. And I get he's a public figure, but motherfucker, like, you know, you make these rap songs, right, <laughs> about, like, you know, kill your masters, right, you know, and all this shit. And um, oh, it's a Killer metaphor. It means it's a metaphor for Joe right. Biden. Yeah, Clearly. exactly. Right. Uh, like, I mean, Killer Mike, like, just to be straight up, dude, like, he has, like, material interests, like, you know, class interests, like, um, here in Atlanta, like, you know, owning businesses, like, owning barbershops. I think this Ooh. motherfucker might own, like, a have a wing place or something like that. Is he a like landlord? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, he, I think he, like, might actually be a landlord, too. Oh, actually, don't, don't hold me to that. But I wouldn't be surprised if he was. And, um, you know, I met Killer Mike, um, and this was a very, very brief interaction. Uh, when Bernie first came down here in 2016, he held a rally at the Fox Theater, and I was uh, a volunteer and helping out and kind of shuttling people in. And um, I, you know, got to stand up on stage and wave my Bernie sign while Bernie's speaking. And I never got to meet Bernie, but um, I'm like kind of like moving like to the side stage or whatever. I don't know the theatrical theater term for, it, but I'm moving to the side of the stage. And I just feel like this mass, like this step neck up next to me, like the wind, you know what I mean? Cause Killer Mike, dude, and I, looked, and I was like, oh shit. I was like, yo, Killer Mike, what the fuck is good, bro? You know, and it like started chatting a bit, man. And um, yeah, I think like that, uh, that kind of like illusion fell apart when I heard him, like, there's one thing if you're a public black figure, like. You know, and you're someone like Killer Mike. I'm not expecting Keisha Lance Bottoms, the current mayor, to do this. And yeah, we can talk about her in a little bit. But, you know, you could just, like, not say anything. Like, yeah. when people are burning shit down. Like, when people are burning shit down, you could just, like, like the idea that you're, like, Jamie, you were saying, like, these people don't own anything. Uh, the best take that I saw about that Wendy's uh, where Rashad Brooks was fucking slaughtered by these pigs where was, um you know, uh, uh, Leslie Lee III uh, tweeted out, she's like, 
friend of the show. Yo, hopefully I have him on my shit too. Um, sure, love great. that dude. Shout out to him, man. He he said that Wendy's offered so much to the black community. Um, <laughs> shitty food and low paid jobs. <laughs> low paid jobs, right? And it's like, yeah, dead ass, dude. Like Killer Mike, you didn't you didn't really have to say anything, and it just shows you the commitments of the black misleadership class um, when um, their material interests are threatened. Right. And I don't even think that's a conscious decision. I just think that's like sort of just baked in into, into um, the class position. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's also in, in a way, yes, class position, but it's also like just baked into like, I think black Americans, right. Or black people in America. I mean, my mom, for example, um, supports like the protest, but she doesn't necessarily port, uh, support burning shit down. That might just be a function of being like an older, you know, a black elder, but it's just like, uh, you know, that's, uh, property damage, you know, and property rights in this country um, have been something that's been so upheld, especially within the black community, despite the fact that we were fucking brought here as slaves. So if anyone should be socialist and communist, it should be black people. But it's just, you know, it's just something that's either consciously or subconsciously, um, you know, acted upon by the black community and depends on, you know, how much you believe in this shit or what your class interests are, your material interests are, you know, like Killer Mike's, for example. So. Fuck that dude. <laughs> I'll say that, yo. Like for real. You nah, heard nah, it here first. <laughs> yeah, I heard it. I've said it before too, yo, man. But yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm not a fan of him anymore, man. And I, Maybe he'll come on my shoulder. <laughs> question about the uh, the aftermath of the the killing of Rayshard Brooks and and the yeah. burning of that Wendy's. Uh, you know that that got a lot of press that the the Wendy's was burnt down. But I don't yeah. think there was much follow up on the fact that that area, from what I hear, was kind of turned into something like an autonomous zone. For weeks mm. afterwards, where uh, almost entirely local black people, people who knew Rayshard Brooks, uh, more or less gathered and grieved and organized and the yeah. police wouldn't go in for a while. Right. And that, that wasn't really in the yeah. media. Did you did you see that or experience that? at all? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, man. I um after I went to um, I did not go to that site, the Wendy's, because um, uh, a couple Weeks after that had popped off or whatever, I got um I went to a protest in Atlanta and got like shot with a rubber bullet and got hit and got arrested and stuff. So I was kind of laying low for a little bit. Um, but I was constantly getting updates about how they yeah, Andy, as you're saying, it was sort of like a semi-autonomous zone, right? Where I mean, people were just like not even for an action, right? But just throwing parties, dude. Like, and when when I say parties, I mean I don't mean some frivolous sort of thing. I mean people were like congregating and um you know. And in the true Atlanta fashion, right, uh, celebrating um, his life and letting people, you know, who were involved in the activist community speak. And the cops, um, I mean, there was also kind of, it was really hard to get there as well, um, getting off of the highway and trying to exit off on University Avenue and get there. I mean, cops were I mean, the exit was blocked off, but even getting there. Was difficult. But at the same time, like the, the cops sort of allowed it to happen. And it really became from what I what I know it really did become um, not so much a site of mourning, but of, um, of uh, I wouldn't say celebration, um, but um, action, you know, I'll just put it that way. Resistance, right? maybe. Resistance, exactly, exactly. Um, but I mean, since then, I mean, the, the protests in Atlanta, I'm not, I think maybe this is a trend across the country. It's not that things have sort of died down, but I think people might be looking for direction you know, and, um, what to do next. And, um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I think, you know, needs to happen at these sites, right? Like, I, I think people might get offended at the idea of like, 
what the fuck you're playing music and drinking and celebrating like where this guy got shot but it really is people who knew him you know young black radicals holding these events and trying to build community in a way that i think is communicable to people who actually like live in that community and go through you know the everyday sort of like oppression of just like you know what the fucking apd you know that's the atlanta police department um of what they do right of terrorizing these black communities so yeah it's um yeah that's so important because yeah a lot of not everybody connects the dots on their own right like some people do um but other people live under very oppressive conditions and they might not know who to be mad at for that until they like um listen to a crass record to use an example of, of someone from my life but um or you know so i feel like i mean i'm, I'm using like the white version of this i guess but, um, run the jewels yeah like it is really important to have people out there who are like shall we say the really advanced sectors of the working class the folks are talking about like talking to everybody else in, the vanguard maybe yeah, yeah there's it, a word you might you might call them that yeah talking yeah. to everyone else in a way that everyone like understands each other and just pushing pushing that message and getting um shall we say class consciousness around yeah. uh, spreading it around spread it around yeah. and i don't want to add this real quick because i thought this was interesting um after uh i got i got arrested um for violating the curfew um, God, I wish I could remember what month this is. What is time? But um, it was, it was, we, we, I got arrested with my partner um, and uh, the, the curfew had, was in place by then. And a, a week later, maybe curfew is still in place, maybe a couple of days and thousands of people turned out, right. Um, and violating this curfew and the next fucking day they lifted it. Right. That feels and um, yeah. And I think this, this shows that like a, uh, I'm going to refer to like Richard Dick for this because he made a tweet that said something like um, the fact that there were so many bodies right on the ground, the, the police, they couldn't enforce the curfew. Right. And the next day, what do you know? Keisha Lance bottoms lifts it. Right. So I think that goes to show you the power of just like materially having people there on the ground. Right. Whether, you know, they're young black radicals or like, you know, white folk who live in gentrified parts of Atlanta who are like truly genuinely incensed by this whole thing. Um, yeah, we just need bodies, man. You know, I know people are scared and that's like a lot what the curfew in Atlanta was. It was to dissuade people. And I'm very, I'm very sure it was to dissuade like well, you know, well-meaning, well-to-do like white folk from turning up. Um, but, you know, they they didn't give a fuck and they showed up anyway, man. And Atlanta was one of the first cities to lift like, you know, their, their nightly curfew. So, um, you know, shout out to uh, solidarity. For That's that, so you know? good. And like yeah. we were talking about earlier, um, it is really cool to see when, um, I guess we were talking about left just showing up to live shit, but when, when the liberals, when like the good ones <laughs> show up, <laughs> the ones who think that racism is bad and they yeah. really believe that and they might not understand it completely, but they want to help when they show up to stuff. That is a real opening, I think. And yeah. it would be foolish for anyone on the left to ignore just because they are, you know, dorks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like been trying to develop this like, kind of theory like not theory but idea in my head or whatever it's not original but like you know we talk about class consciousness 
but like what about like white consciousness right like you know white people who reach a point where um they sort of feel like okay like i i don't know how else to put it but like I'll give you an example, man. I fucking hope, like, shit, man. I hope my ex doesn't hear this right now because, like, living, <laughs> I'm talking about it. But I was just giving an example. I'm not going to name names or anything. I was watching Moana with her, right? <laughs> and we're watching Moana, and she suddenly turns to me, and she's white, and she suddenly turns to me, and she's like, I feel bad. You know, and I'm like, this is like five minutes in the movie. I'm like, why do you feel bad? And she's like, well, because, like, this movie takes place, like, you know, like, you know, a century or so before white folk got to like the pacific like what we would call i guess like the the pacific islands right you know that pacific island thing they 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 these people are just like sort of like living out their traditions and their culture and she's like i feel bad you know and this is amidst the whole blm protest and i think that like the last bastion right for like um and um I, I forget his name, but Ignacio Knight, 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 I forget his name, but he talks about like abolishing whiteness, right? Oh, Noel Ignatiev. Yes, yes, yes. He talks about abolishing whiteness and this idea that like understanding that like, it's not about white privilege necessarily, right? It's just like sort of like this, this consciousness, right? And, and feeling empathy. And I'm, I'm happy that like, we're starting to see that now where it's like, like, not just like, you know, like white people being performative about it but actually willing to put their bodies on the line. Portland, you know, perfect example of this. And um, yeah, I think like maybe some like kind of, you know, I study or like maybe some survey needs to be done where, you know, people need to be sort of like, you know, questioned and asked, like, why did you do this? And um, I think it's a good thing, right? Yeah. Good thing. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, just to jump in on that, I think this, this is a really significant thing that you're touching on, which is that, uh, Noel Ignatiev and, and Ted Allen were, were writing. They, they I, I think that they coined the concept of white skin privilege in the mm. mid '60s, based on Du Bois's idea of uh, the psychological wage of whiteness, uh, mm. in, in specifically in Reconstruction. And this idea of skin of skin privilege was that they were noticing that in the integrated factories in the Midwest, Chicago and Detroit, and so on that workers, black and white workers, were often striking together in ways that were explicitly anti-racist, and white mm. workers had become uh, ideologically anti-racist. But when it came to things like school integration and redlining, they stood with each other because they wanted to protect that, uh, that privilege uh, of, of that, that white supremacist infrastructure that made their yeah. lives uh, materially better. And uh, yeah. Ignatiev was trying to challenge the idea that kind of uh, white privilege actually did make the lives of white workers better. And then if white workers could understand that they were stronger, not only with black workers, but for black demands, if they could understand that that white privilege was a kind of uh, poisonous bait, he a calls barbed it. barbed offering, yeah. Yeah, I think um, he said. That you did get yeah. the worm, but you were, you were caught by the, the white bourgeoisie and ultimately devoured along with everybody else. During, in the course of the uprising, we saw white people participating uh, in, in defense of and in support of a black-led uprising in unprecedented ways. You didn't mm. see shit like that in the 60s, as far as I know. Right. It was most, oh. When there was rioting in the 60s, whites were very reactionary towards it. Uh, but now you have a lot of white people who were, you know, previously or, or continue to be very liberal, uh, you know, supporting like burning down precincts and looting. And, yeah, and, we're doing all the looting and stuff like that. Apparently, yeah. you saw yeah. you saw MLB and NHL teams striking, mm -hmm. albeit briefly, 
for black lives. And these are people who are like Trump supporters, but they're striking because they, they recognize the gravity of the moment. Uh, so it, it's a really unprecedented moment. And uh, I think our next topic also gets to that, to the point where um, a lot of, uh, like some white people are kind of just no longer identifying as white. Mm. <laughs> Excellent I, I, transition. Real, real quick, because I want to I add to that and end on that real quick, and I'll do it briefly, I promise. Um, you know, I, You're I, a professional, I, we trust you. <laughs> I spoke to a, when I was speaking to Matt um, and we did an, we did an, uh, an interview on the Civil War and I used Du Bois Black Reconstruction as, um, as kind of a, a template for that. And what I realized was that you had the free soil movement, right, um, prior to the Civil War, where which was populated by like labor activists, like an actual Marxist, right, like um, white ethnics who had immigrated from Europe. And their failure in uniting with the abolition movement, which they saw as a moralization um, and also as a defense of capital, um, the failure was that they couldn't see that the continued existence of slavery would also degrade white labor. Rather, they thought that they were competing right, with slave labor and black labor, you know, free black labor, which they were. But if only they could understand how the the if blacks were kept enslaved right if they could understand that it was essentially like a race to the bottom right if they could if they could get that right to overthrow like the white like planter class or the white industrial class in the north and you know maybe you know the civil war would have had a different narrative tone and reconstruction might have succeeded mm. right so um I, I always like think about that a lot and sort of like the 60s as you were saying andy the 60s wasn't this this uh era in which white people stood in 100 percent solidarity with black folk right um it was very reactionary but maybe now is the time where you know people can sort of especially with covid right like especially where like folks are realizing like hey man the government doesn't give a shit about anybody right and like what we're going through now like you know marginalized groups in this country have been going through forever maybe you know maybe hopefully now is the time where that sort of interracial uh working class solidarity can you know maybe happen so you know we'll see yeah so we had that uh transition you want to continue on oh, yeah with? so yeah yeah Depending how long this goes, perhaps this will be a bonus. Maybe we'll do like is. we did last time. Maybe a bonus. Maybe a bonus. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a really good time talking to you guys as Aww. well, man. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I was super nervous. Like, oh, before, but this is tight as fuck. We're you guys sweethearts, are, like, man. We're we're easy. Yeah, y'all are as cool as I thought you were. Hell yeah. Uh, Let's try to go to seven seven o'clock ish. Is that cool for you guys? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. All right. That's fine. Maybe so, a little uh, over, but yeah, well, I'm, I'm having fun with it too. Yeah, me too. Um, okay, so. <laughs> Um, like Andy said, there are, I mean, I don't really have a good transition for this. Andy did it so artfully. And then all I have written down <laughs> on my sheet is, I kind of fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. all, no, you did great. All I have written down on my sheet is white people pretending to be black. What's <laughs> up with that? Yo, bro. Oh my God. This is going to be the funny thing. Oh man, I did Ah, uh, yo. All right. I'm going to shut up. I have so much. She asked the question, man. What's up with that? Question mark, question mark, you know, question mark. Is the funniest thing. All right, I got to stop laughing for this. <laughs> Yo, it's just the funniest thing in the world to me. I mean, like, I hope I'm not offending anybody that's going to be listening to this because I don't really, I know there's some levity in it, but it's just fucking insane. We are bro. maybe behind the paywall, so let her rip. <laughs> so just insane, assume we're dude. behind the paywall and just, just shred everybody. 
<laughs> yeah, like, um, I don't know. Like, what was your question, I guess, Jamie, instead? Uh. I believe it was, what's up with that? <laughs> Yo, it's like, all right, so like, oh, man, dude, like, it, it's like, okay, I think it's like twofold, right? Like, one, um, I definitely do think with the Jessica Cruz shit and Rachel Dozal, like, I'm not a psychiatrist. I am not a therapist and not anything, but there has to be something going on, you know. Um, uh, I don't know how to put this because I, I, there just has to be something going on something more than just neural, like neural atypical or something like that. Yeah, yeah, man. I'll put it that way, right? Okay. But also, too, though, it's like, all right, so when you get into these spaces um, as an activist or as an organizer or even as like an academic um, who is uh, teaching uh, black studies or anything like this, especially from like a left liberal sort of point of view, or even like maybe even touching upon materialism, um, you are seen as more valid if you're a person of color, like straight up, like, you know what I mean? Like if you're like, you know, a femme, like, and you're teaching like women's studies, like people take more like credence with what you're saying. Right. I really do feel like th this like purchase of like uh, in this like sort of libidinal economy of like, you know, activism, black studies, whatever, black studies, let's put it that way, right? Or marginalized like studies, right? Um, critical race theory even, right? Um, is that you feel like people will take you more seriously if you're black. And maybe that has to do with some sort of like neurosis, neurological thing, but like, you know, the fact that, like, Jessica Krug, for example, right? Um, Just you know, la bombalera. Yes, yes, dude. She went through, like, a... Man, I'm not trying to repeat the shit I said on the Trailblazers episode, but it's like, because I did one, we talked about this, but it's like like a Pokemon, yo. She went through three states. <laughs> she like, did she, she pretend like, to be three different black people? Yo, yo bro, let me, let me put the shit up right now real quick, if y'all give me a minute, because yeah, yeah. it's like, she pretended to be three different, like, things, man. One was like a Rosie Perez, I remember. Bro, she was like fucking. Hold up, she was fucking. Said she was Afro, like Boricua, you know, so like Puerto Rican, right? Like African American, right? And then like it was like just some other shit where it's just like, dude, like she was so, I guess, to some people, ethnically ambiguous, which mm -hmm. is like fair, dude. Like, you know, I like I would have looked at her and as a black person been like, because you know, I just got like, like I was about to use a word that I probably shouldn't use on the stream, whatever. But like, as a black person, I just got senses, right? I'm like, oh, like, dude, like, you know, you're black. You know what I mean? Like, okay, cool. And looking at her, I'd be like, nah, man, like maybe not, but like, who the fuck am I to tell her who she is? Right. And just the fact that she would like kind of code switch and transition, you know what I mean? Yes, this is what it was. It was North African blackness, US rooted blackness, and then Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness. Oh, right? the Bronx. Like the La Bombalera thing, yeah. man. And she wasn't so, even from the Bronx. No, she, she was, was from, from Kansas. Kansas City. And the accent was so bad. It was bad. I said to somebody when I saw it that I would have, if I was watching that stream when, like, before this became a story and just saw her, like, yelling during this, whatever, a conference call for some political thing, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. But once you actually dig down and you see who she is and what she's doing, you're like, that's bad. That, how did nobody realize it's so that's really bad? Well, well, it gives her it gives her validity, right? Like as a, as a professor, right, of like black studies. It I gives mean, her validity. That that might be like this, you know, the main impetus for her for her being that way and transitioning that way. But I mean, part of it might just be like she found she was like a in, a part of these these activist groups in the South Bronx. You know, she was arrested 
um, in, in like a pretty bad kettling uh, in, in the, the Bronx here early on in the uprising. Uh, so she had, she had skin in the game. She was, uh, you know, pretty well known in that scene. Um, so I don't think it was entirely career. Well reviewed oh, book by the way. As a white person, though, this huh? bad thing, right? Is why couldn't you just do it as a white person? Like she was I, in too I, deep, I, you know. I don't think she could. <laughs> like at a certain point, she just like, couldn't I'm not reveal. Be like, yo, I don't believe you because you're a white person when you put your body on the line. But there, there right. really is like, I mean, it's just insidious. Like there's nothing good that like I think came out of this. Right. Like, it's just like you don't need to do that. Actually, white people to white people, if you presented yourself and she's like Jewish. Right. So like, you, if you had presented yourself and there's a strong socialist, like, you know, activist Jewish tradition, which she could have went with. But like you, you might have been able to reach more people. I mean, I don't know who knows. Right. But it's like I don't feel sorry for her. I mean, as a black person, like I don't feel sorry for her. I mean, I think that she capitalized on colorism within the black community, you know, and um, it's harmful, you know, that that kind of shit is harmful. I mean, I don't know if y'all know, uh, but like a couple of years ago, like this is back when I was high school, but you'd have like team light skin versus team uh, dark skin. Ooh. You know, I no. mean, it's back historically, we have like the brown paper bag test. You know what I mean? Where she was like, like people are too nice to the light skinned people. I yeah, mean, yeah. like what the, when, when she's like actually uh, taking advantage of the fact that people exactly. are nice to the light skinned people. <laughs> And this is historical because that was your that was your proximity, right, to like the slaveholder, right? You know what I mean? Like like you were like the fucking like the house like nigga. You know what I mean? Like that's just like what it is, dude. And the fact that she would like be aware of this history and capitalize on it, and like have this medium post where she's just self-flagellating. Yeah. You know what I mean? That like it's just I don't like I think that she should like deserve like privacy and she should kind of like be left alone and think about what she's done. Um, but it's just, we're going to have more of these like popping up in the next couple of it's years. I really do feel like. And I think part of the reason it's a trend is that it's very good for right wing narratives to find, yes. to find people that they could label as race traders, you know, not in those yeah. words, but to say like, look at this person who is a fraud and talks this way, white, or you know, if they're one, if they're anti-Semites, they'll say like she's actually Jewish. She's like an outside agitator, um, yeah. and that could that could reinforce not only the colorism but the color line, saying that mm. if you are white, you need to behave and talk a certain way. There, there can't be that kind of cultural mixing. In reality, there is a lot of cultural mixing. It's just not it's not done in such like a. I moved to this neighborhood. I am now pretending to be this person. But yeah. like white people grow up in black neighborhoods and are, you know, of that neighborhood. And it's not like they're pretending not to be white. That's very you common. You have to do it in such a fucking creepy, <laughs> divisive <laughs> way, right? No, you don't. And Andy, what you're saying, too, I think that like lends to like um, I've repeated this quote so many fucking times. Uh, and I heard it from Terrence actually first. But, um, you know, Stuart Hall says that race is the modality in which class is lived. Right. And like, if you if you are a white person who has moved to a black neighborhood and you uh, grow up with black folk and you learn to speak like you know, like whatever that means, right? Like Ebonics or like Amer African American vernacular, whatever that means, right? Um, I think that's also that's a function of class, right? And that's like I don't have a problem with that, yo, like at all, dude. Like I don't think that's like you know, like 
someone trying to code switch or someone trying to like pass or anything like that i think like just like if you're a white person growing up in like a predominantly like black working class neighborhood these are just the things that um are going to influence the way you speak and the way you dress and all that and to me that's like actually like that gives me some kind of hope right that like at the end of the day like interracial class solidarity right is like you know is what we need right and that's like something that's feasible but with her, you know, Krug and like, you know, going back to Rachel Dolezal and stuff, it's just like how much more powerful and how much more like, you know, like uh, how much more influence would you have had if you just like didn't pretend to be somebody that you weren't? You could just you know what I mean? be a white person who's in the black stuff. Person. That's fine. And still be a comrade, you know, and yeah. still be a comrade. And I'll respect you like just as much, you know what I mean? So. I, I don't know, man. I do think I'm not going to like rip, like rip on her too much or anything or take her in her because like, I think that obviously like this is something that's incredibly embarrassing for her and probably something that she's um, sort of questioning herself. But I do think we're going to see more of this shit. I mean, I think I saw another case the other day of this yeah. shit happening. And like you're saying, Andy, it just gives also more fuel to the right, right? And their mm-hmm. culture war. You know yeah. what I mean? And like so, Dozel still insists that she's black too. Bro, she still got in them fucking Damn. like extensions, man. Just like, what the <laughs> I, fuck are you doing, bro? She's she has a documentary to, to on Netflix. I guess. I mean, I I kind of feel bad for her. Oh, I I'm feel bad. Yeah. Sad that like bad. she if she can't feed her kids and stuff. Um, yeah. That is a that's a problem with society though. Like everyone should be able to feed their kids no matter there's, what there's they the, have done to offend everyone. Of course, they're like the particular <laughs> individuals that this happens to. But then there's also the larger social dynamic that we're talking about, which is in these particular spaces, whether that's activist spaces or academic spaces or whatever, there's a certain currency that exists there. And it seems like. Yeah, well, I wanted to go through a couple of takes, actually. Oh, Um, give us takes. And that is one of them. And I'm going to credit the takes because I'm trying really hard, especially in this segment, to not steal things from black people. So (laughs) this. This take right. is from Touré Reed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a good ally, all right? Good um, comrade. Fuck ally. We need more comrades. Yeah, You're no, comrade, the, yeah. the A oh, word yeah. was facetious. I, we, don't, <laughs> we don't use that word here on the Antifada. Um, so Touré Reed said, like we've been talking about, it's not just the result of standpoint epistemology and academic culture, Right, which you know, for the first time in our history, confers some kind of marginal benefit upon people who've been marginalized in the past in certain spaces. But more than that, like they actually demand a kind of performance of like black authenticity, right? And Torre yeah. Reed has grown up in an academic family, so he's been around this shit a lot. And he said, you know, more so than her offensive caricature of blackness, he's more offended that there's like a demand for that for this in academia and like an audience for it. And she's also like angry and policing the boundaries of blackness all the time. And they like that too, right? Cause they want to be um, mm. flagellated in some way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this other take that I thought was interesting by uh, the writer Dexter Thomas, um, where he said, it's kind of like almost a, a really heightened version of white fragility, right? Where like <laughs> white liberals are so caught up in feeling guilty about their privilege and that's the step they're stuck on. They feel so bad about it that they just want to find a way out of it by not being white anymore. Yeah. 
<laughs> I like that one a lot. That that one, I think that one is most accurate. Yeah, because it's like it's like really you see the bad places that um, this politics of priv- checking your privilege and um, you know working on yourself and that's how you you defeat racism. That's that's where this leads. This leads to some very bad places and like. I, I actually understand the white guilt thing. Like, I've got some of it. It seems like a pretty rational way to feel, actually. It's the first, like, step. It's the first step before you actually, you know, yeah. yeah. If, uh, if I were like, um, I don't know, I had a brother and our parents, like, treated me really well and then made my brother, like, sleep in the basement and eat rats. Like, I feel kind of bad about that you have and, sister privilege but, and feel bad about but it but i also know that it wouldn't actually do anything to get out, him out of the basement just to like be extra nice to him when i see him in the hallway and like um m- check my privilege make sure he knows that i know like <laughs> what's going on yeah. like yeah. you have to actually do something at the end of the day otherwise like it doesn't really it doesn't matter if you feel guilty or not like that's not in and of you, itself, a, a subversive or revolutionary act. No, it's 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 a uh, it's interpassivity. You know, to take a term from um, well, I mean, Mark Fisher didn't invent the term, but he uses it in capitalist realism. It's like uh, anti-capitalism, or in this case, anti-racism, performing, um, you know, uh, doing the performance of anti-racism for you, mm. right? It's not of any material basis or value, right? And um, I don't know, like, I wanted to add this. I think that it's like. When you get in certain spaces, um, and I feel like I can say this, right? Like wielding your uh, blackness um, or supposed professed blackness as a badge of authority, um, I mean, it has purchase, right? Uh, and I think this is like, again, the Jessica Krug thing, right? Especially her, you know what I mean? I, I felt like she she felt like she, she had the social capital to like say the things that, you know, she was teaching or believe in them. Um, just maybe a function of two of where she grew up or the you know, protests and actions that she's been a part of. But like, yeah, man, people just see you as more valid, you know, so. I see you. I hear you. I see you. I I am you. (laughs) (laughs) I I had one other thought on this, which is that, uh, of of course, the the tradition of white people pretending to be people of color is, is a long one in this country and accounts for a lot of what we understand as American culture, you know, like, uh, from a lot of the popular music was just directly taken from from mm. slave or ex-slave songs um elvis is a good example too. sure man. going yeah. up to blo- going up to elvis but like in between you have a long period of blackface uh and then mm. and then elvis of course but in the post-war period uh you, you get this sort of shift where it's no longer about like pantomiming uh or or like just directly stealing those songs but it's actually uh, there's this kind of trying to become black or trying to blend into blackness, which uh, Norman Mailer uh, actually uh, k- kind of pinpoints this in the in the 50s with his essay, The White Negro, um, where mm. he, he defines hipness or the hipster as somebody who uh, begins to uh, identify with the marginality of specifically male blackness and tries mm. to become that in a way, as a way of... Uh, of a way as a, of escaping the kind of totalitarianism of of whiteness and of like American identity and uh, you know capitalist realism perhaps um, mm. it's an essay that's maybe worth revisiting. Are you talking about the white Negro? Yeah, 
Um, I think that's a good, I think that's actually like a good, like, I think that's, yeah, I think that is like sort of, again, like this idea that like race and class are so intertwined that like sort of escaping like capitalist realism as a white person is to like kind of dive into black culture because, you know, like black culture has been or black people have been historically like materially dispossessed and disadvantaged. Right. So it's kind of going outside of like this, this capitalist system and revisiting or visiting cultures that have tried to build something like out of that sort of oppression, right. Whether it's music or literature or like any sort of form of art. Right. So yeah, I like that. I like to think about it. But then an interesting thing that Mailer says at the end of the essay is that Mm. he predicts that this uh, through a a, a kind of um, a a unity or an alliance between um, these kind of like downwardly mobile or downwardly identifying uh, hipsters and the people who are actually materially marginalized, there can be a kind of Marxist revolution. Oh, cool. he, he, said, he says this at the end of at, at the end of the Damn, white Norman Mailer. Okay, comrade. <laughs> he was a lot. <laughs> okay. Shit. Yeah, he had a lot of problems, but uh, I think this this essay raises some interesting uh, and salient points. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder if uh, this this kind of connects with some stuff that Wilderson's been saying recently. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes about how um, whites are beginning. To, to understand like a new in the course of this uprising that the reason black people have taken the lead in it is because they are so, uh, especially young black people, because they are so at the forefront of objection that they really have nothing to lose in destroying like a commercial district. Um, so they're the ones that will take the risk to do it. Lump and proletariat, so, baby. Uh, he doesn't say lumpen, but, um, but anyway, uh, the, the Wilderson is worth reading in this regard as well. No, um, I, as defining blackness as like uh, as not as like a skin color, but as just something that is like outside of the world of people who want to defend society as it is or has mm. any stake in it. Andy, can you DM me that later? Like, I'd like to read that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, Hell yeah. yeah. I think that yeah. ties in with a lot of our discussions, actually, about the role of the most marginalized people in society. Right. The lump in proletariat as potential revolutionary subjects precisely mm. because they have nothing, they have nothing to, that they're protecting um, mm. and they have been treated like shit by the system and they understand that more intimately than anybody. Plus, mm. you know, knowledge of like um, urban topography that might be useful in some sort of guerrilla warfare situation um, mm-hmm. in a video game. But um, <laughs> parody, parody. What, what was I going to say? I was going to say, oh, um, yeah, I mean, maybe we don't want to open this bag of potato chips. But um, I was <laughs> I read that that sort of infamous essay by um, Adolf Reed father of Touré Reed, where he compares um, transracial identity to transgender identity. And it's like pretty trolly, I think, and mm-hmm. uh, probably written in bad faith, I would say, as an attack on trans identity because he considers the Rachel Dozel thing to be a sideshow and he does not actually think that transracial identity is legitimate. But, you know, even if it's written in bad faith, like we still have to we can't just say like that's offensive we still have to say why it's wrong and i was yeah. like kind of torturing myself with this because he's like 
he's really kind of a smart fucker. Like it's yeah, hard. It's hard to argue with him sometimes, even when I'm like have a gut feeling that he's wrong and I'm right. But yeah. and then I like start torturing myself, like, oh, am I just trying to be woke, or am I actually am I actually right about this? I don't know. And then I talk to some people and um, figured out that no, like race and gender do not function in the same way. In society and you know th- we could go on and on about this but just like one of many things is that um gender is not inherently bad i don't think like no. gender has existed for a very long time and there's lots of evidence that men and women were like fairly equal in um primitive society and where, in many indigenous societies. Yeah, oh, yeah. and there is yeah. a long history also of um, people being transgender, having different non-binary expressions of gender, um, whereas race, we all know that like race is fake, right? It was invented fairly recently specifically to oppress people. Right. So mm-hmm. like, I don't think that they are the same, and I would love to abolish race and for race to lose its social meaning i think the purpose that race serves is a negative one in the world i think we all are in agreement on that but gender i mean i feel like we could have a lot of genders after capitalism is over and that would be fine as many as you want and i don't mean that facetiously right a thousand genders bloom (laughs) <laughs> Why not, dude? It's like when Joe Biden was asked how many genders are there, right? <laughs> you know, at least three. I, I think, at least three. I mean, I think the best way to just kind of look at it, right, is that like, you know, capitalism like didn't create any of these sort of isms, right, or this like kind of hierarchy, right? But it sort of organizes them, you know. And um, you know, race and blackness is uh, in relation with class is kind of unique to it, but in dialectic like relationship with it. And, um, you know, I, I think that like COVID and this whole kind of thing that has sort of happened has been like the, um, as horrible as, as terrifying as it's been, has been sort of like an eye opener for so many people to realize that like, yo, like these like marginalized communities have been going through this forever. And it's the design of like, you know, this government, the United States, you know, government and the system, the state to, um, you know, divide people along all these lines where yes they're they exist and they're interconnected and i'm not saying that class is primary but you know they're all in relationship with each other right it's dialectical you know that's that's the way i put it you know it's just dialectical and yeah maybe those are the grounds that you know we should be fighting on just meeting people where they're fucking at you know dead ass it always ass. comes it yeah. always comes well aaron that that was great man thank you so much for coming with us and uh Hell on this yeah. journey and once more plug your new uh podcast that's coming out for the listeners oh yeah uh a time of monsters i don't have a patreon set up um but i will soon uh to look out for that y'all can follow me on twitter uh posadas underscore trap god or trap gd uh, and yeah, man, I'll be posting updates hopefully first week of October. I'll uh, have the first five episodes up and y'all could check that shit out and hope you guys like come on my show too. Like oh. I'm trying to figure out scheduling, but I'm going to hit you guys up. Um, we would love to, man. That'd be great. Yeah. Including Andy, especially for an episode on Posadism. I'm, I'm looking forward. <laughs> I'm really like, like, I'm itching for that book to come in the mail, yo. Like I'm so excited to read it. So yeah. Should be this week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. This is tight. Yeah. yeah thanks so much for being here. Oh yeah, hell yeah. Ask the plot thickens. 
It gives me the dickens reminiscent of Charles. A little discotheque nestled in the ghettos of Nickerville, USA. Via Atlanta, Georgia. A little spot where young men and young women go to experience their first little taste of the nightlife. Me? Well, I've never been there. Well, perhaps once, but I was so engulfed in the old E, I never made it to the dope. You speak of hardcore. Why the DJ sweating out all the problems and troubles of the day? Why this fine, bow-legged girl finds all our doughs, loves, lukewarm lullabies in your left ear, competing with set it off in the right. But it all blends perfectly. Let the liquor tell it. Hey, hey, look, baby, they playing our song. And the crowd goes wild, as if Holyfield has just won the fight. But in actuality, it's only about 3 a.m. And three niggas just done got hauled off in the ambulance. Two niggas done started busting. One nigga done took his shirt off, talking about, now who else want to fuck with Hollywood Cole? This just my interpretation of the situation. 